Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, and it was um, scary on the outside because nobody liked you, you know, and the police would always give you a hard time and you'd get, you know, bashed up by teddy boys and they did the normal kind of things, you know. It was very difficult life, you know, because you'd have all the punk rockers up the back waiting for you to do neat, neat, neat. And then there'd be the sort of, what I used to call the Vanian dollies waiting <laughs> for us to do Shadow of Love. And so there'd be a shift in the audience you know, between the front rows, <laughs> depending on what songs we were playing. So, Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate twice-weekly classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now on this week's show, I've got a great interview with one of the great names of the 70s punk scene. Quite literally a great name, actually. Christopher Miller, better known to the world as the inimitable Rat Scabies from the pioneering group The Damned. Now, there may be other names that come to mind first when you say punk in the 70s, but in terms of being pioneers, The Damned led the way. In 1976, they became the first UK punk band to release a single when New Rose came out. The following year, they were the first UK punk band to release an album, Damned, Damned, Damned. They're also the first UK punk band to tour America too. But other than that, they've also evolved into one of the first goth rock bands as well. Their 80s releases saw a shift in their music that put them at the forefront of that musical genre too. Now, the band's evolution also came about with lineup changes as well. Formed originally with guitarist Brian James and drummer Rat Scabies, those two recruited frontman Dave Vanian and then bassist Captain Sensible, who became the original band for the first two albums. They then split up, which quickly reformed, and then other notable members came and left, including Bryn Merrick, Lou Edmonds, Roman Jug, and many others, including a short time recording demos and a handful of live appearances with a legend that is Lemmy from Motorhead. Now, the big news last year was that the original four members would be reforming to play a number of live dates across the UK. Now, considering the, well, ill feeling between a number of the men, it came as a bit of a shock, to say the least. Now, in my interview with Ratscabies, we go through the highlights of his career, the stories from the early days of the punk scene with Malcolm McLaren and Sid Vicious. We've got the ill-fated Anarchy in the UK tour, changes to the sound and the, the goth movement and how that affected the fans and all the information behind reforming the original members for this this new tour, which has sadly been put back to 2022. There's some cracking tales, and in true punk style, you may hear him rolling and smoking a cigarette throughout the interview as well. So here you go. Please enjoy my chat with legendary pioneering punk drummer with the damned, Rat Scabies. 
Now, The Damned were the first UK punk band to release a single, the first to release an album, the first to tour America, the first to break up, and then the first to get back together again. Groundbreaking would sum it up nicely. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show a man who kept the beat for this incredible group and is the self-styled drummer, grail hunter, and cigar box guitar maker. Welcome, Ratscabies from The Damned. Hi, people. How you doing? We're good, thank you. We're good indeed. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that intro alone, isn't there? But let's start with the end bit. I mean, the cigar box guitars and and amps as well, they look fantastic, the ones I've seen. I mean, where did that come from? What what got you into that? Um, My son came home with a cigar box that he picked up somewhere. You know, I think he wanted me to put Rizzler in it or something. But I (laughs) I looked at it and I just remembered this thing about how people used to make guitars out of them. And I just happened to have a couple of bits of old timber lying around. So I... um, sat and made one it took me about a week i suppose of just actually figuring out what to do and how to make it work and what the process was and it was incredibly therapeutic it was a lot of fun because you know you you have to kind of put your head in a certain space because i I was really shit woodwork and all of that (laughs) sort of thing at school i didn't really take to it so i didn't know one end of a screwdriver from another but then suddenly having this sort of project and thinking, well, if some bloke living in a shack in a swamp can do it, then I must be able to, you know. So, And I enjoyed the whole process a lot. And somebody saw it and said, I've got a couple of cigar boxes. You know, if you make me one, I'll give you the other box. And so that's what happened. And then the next one came up and somebody liked it. And then it it just kind of... um, kept rolling from there i mean if people seem to like them and i you know i found them really good for me <laughs> good stuff and you, you sell these all over and you get orders from all over the world don't you uh yeah and not that many it's not like you know it's a, a job or anything you know i just kind of make them when i'm in the mood or if i find some good boxes or, or a decent piece of timber but yeah you know People all over, you know, from Alaska to, you know, (laughs) Hollywood. (laughs) You know, I've seen quite a few videos and heard a few tracks and stuff that people have done with them. And I've used them myself on my own record. So it's a cross between a hobby and a and uh, therapy. That's what we all need right now, isn't it? Um, now, I've got a question from one of my listeners who's in touch. Uh, it's a Malcolm Ross from Stylebridge. He said that hearing the first album absolutely blew him away by the speed of it all. He says, uh, how did you develop your drumming style? Because there really wasn't anyone else doing what you were doing back then. Um, I just had too much energy, really. You know, it was uh, I was kicked out of bands because I only wanted to play fast tunes and stuff like that. And really, it was just uh, <laughs> just the person I was, I suppose. And then the, the famous Melody Maker, which has, has made so many bands, hasn't it? You answered to sign a wild young drummer wanted, which is what you're saying you pretty much were back then. It led you to meeting Brian, didn't it? The guitarist and principal songwriter in the band in the early days. Now, I saw an interview with him, and I think I read an interview with him actually saying that meeting you was an absolute delight because it was someone that shared his musical ideas. And I'm guessing the feeling was mutual, yeah? Yeah, and it was strange because Brian had a much better musical background than me. Mine was sort of quite limited, really. And but he had all the, you know, all the Stooges and the MC Five albums. And I think what we really shared was just this attitude for the approach we took to playing music, you know. And that was that was where we kind of gelled. I think was in the, ah, here's somebody who plays like I do. <laughs> it's. Uh, one of those things that's always really difficult to put into words and to 
explain because unless you're one of those fortunate people that have that sort of experience and that kind of relationship with another musician i mean lots of musicians do i'm not saying it's a rarity but unless you have it it's very difficult to kind of understand how it works you know and we were on the same level kind of musically we could both play a bit and we were there but we neither of us were technical or you know neither of us could have joined king crimson or any of those kind of (laughs) bands which was what everybody was doing then so you know we sort of both found a place to get on with it absolutely and you found like-minded people didn't you with uh, with david and captain as well and although it was loud and fast and raw there was there was still some fantastic musicianship behind it i mean you, you've obviously listened to, to the early albums um recently haven't you we'll talk about the reunion tour soon but uh, <laughs> yeah. in terms of the musicianship it, it is definitely there yeah it's um it was funny because like i was saying you know everything was sort of you know Emerson Lake and Palmer and Prog Rock and <laughs> yeah. technical proficiency. So I don't know we just didn't really fit into that. We didn't really want to either because it had all been done. You know, that's why we always had a lot more time for the pop charts. Well, I always did. I don't know if Brian shared it as much as I did, but you know, like Mark Bone and the Sweet and those kind of bands, you know, they were, they were making great sort of pop records and they kind of played in a very similar way you know it's always very simple it was never kind of overdone so yeah i forgot what the real question was anyway but. <laughs> that's all right it was just about the musicianship of the band um but another story that i heard um, was quite interesting was that you used to randomly ask people if they'd be singers or if they were any good at singing to join yeah. the band and and one such person you once approached was was a sid vicious is that true yeah it is it was um there were very few people that had the, the right kind of attitude, you know. And we weren't really interested in finding anyone that was a singer as such. We wanted somebody that had a personality. There were very, very few people in London at the time. You know, you'd go to a Pistols gig and there'd, there'd be maybe 15, 20 spiky haircuts and the rest would be kind of normal pub rock music fans, you know, because... In those days, you didn't really go to see the band. You just went to the, your local pub and they'd have a band on. And if you liked that band, that was good. And if you didn't, it didn't matter, you know, because you could go back the next day. <laughs> so when you used to go and see the Pistols, there'd be, you know, Malcolm and Vivian and, and the usual sort of crowd. But there'd only be a few people that kind of had short hair and plastic trousers and, you know, and stuff. So when somebody like Sid walked in wearing this sort of gold lame jacket with his spiky hair and the paddle, it was like he looks great, you know, let's go and find out who he is. So we would just start talking to people and just figure out if they were up for doing it. Because it's you know, it's not really about being a good singer, you know, it's about knowing what you are and knowing how you can sing it. You know, if you look at Joe Ramone, Johnny Rock. Neither of them had voices that you would claim as being great voices, you know, but they had, they were them, they were their personality and they, you know, they knew how they could deliver what they wanted to say. So how did you meet up with David then? Because in the end, uh, he became the front man, didn't he? And like you said, he had the personality and the charisma and everything to to carry the group as well. Well, I met Dave through Malcolm McLaren. Um, Malcolm wanted me to do something kind of musical, you know, and put a band together. That was kind of where he was coming from. So I, um, I'd met Dave around a, a 
and then the Troy's house and a flat. And, you know, we kind of, um, Malcolm sort of put us together in a bank of um, Masters of the Backside, it was called. It was, uh, um, there was another singer who was also called Dave, <laughs> Dave Zero, who was the complete opposite of Dave Vanian. You know, he was like um, blonde, slightly effeminate, a bit chubby. You know, he was kind of, but had this incredible wit about him and sort of sparkle. And so Malcolm's idea was to have these two opposites front in the band. And Chrissy was going to play guitar, but he wanted her disguised as a boy. And she wasn't going to do any singing. And um, I think, yeah, we I got Captain along to play bass. And we never really, you know, we never did anything, you know, maybe four or five rehearsals or something, and that was about as far as it went. And then I, you know, I'd sort of uh, decided that, you know, Brian and I had decided we were going to make a go of a, of a band. And then Dave was there the same night at the Pistols gig that Sid was there. And he walked through the door and Brian said, oh, wow, he looks really good. Go and talk to him. And he's like, no, I know that guy already. You know, he's... <laughs> He does sing, so um, and the rest is history. The rest is history, and the, the last of the original lineup to join was Captain. But you, you obviously already knew him. You, you two kind of went back a bit further, didn't you? Yeah, we were. Um, what did they used to call us? What was our technical name? But basically, we were cleaners at Fairfield Halls. Porters, they used to call us, and we were cleaners at Fairfield Halls. And I, I started working there. That, that's how I met the captain, and because the, we were similar age. And he, you know, we were both in the music and stuff, which was, mm-hmm. you know, which made it easy to be mates. He, he had a bass and an amp. And so when we'd uh, got Dave, you know, Brian and I decided that um, we'd get the captain in because kind of he fitted the bill and he was a mate and he was, you know, an unusual personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one way of putting it. I've met him a couple of times myself. Yeah, definitely. Um, just moving then forward, I spoke to Steve Diggle from the Buzzcocks, and he refers to, to to everybody in the scene as the school of '76. I mean, what was what was the scene like for you? I mean, did it was obviously coming. You've you mentioned likes of prog and everything with with the musicianship and over the top, and then obviously disco and funk and all that stuff was going on. What what was the scene? What did the scene mean to you then around that time? What the punk scene or the music scene? Uh, the punk scene. I mean, the burgeoning movement as it is it was small there weren't many people you know and it it was really driven by malcolm and and bernie you know they were the catalyst Mm -hmm. for the whole thing and um i think they worked out that if they could have three bands with the same kind of approach and message then you know it would be a movement and therefore that was kind of what they were trying to put together. I mean, I'm not saying none of the other musicians or bands would have ever existed without them, because, you know, one of the interesting things about punk is it was actually happening on its own, mm-hmm. you know, without much involved. You know, like the Saints in Australia, the Stranglers were sort of yeah. quite happily working away as the Stranglers, you know, the Jam were yeah. doing, and none of them were really about London. Eddie and the Hot Rods were kind of on the circuit, you know, and it wasn't about... Malcolm, but they were the kind of ones that sort of pulled the London scene together, if you like. And when the Pistols would play, those of us that sort of wanted to be involved, you know, would always go down and see them. What's, what's your memories of then? You, you mentioned Malcolm and, and things like that, and almost, I don't want to use the man, word manufactured, but it was it was engineered, wasn't it, that sort of thing? What, what What's your memories of well, kind of... I don't think it was engineered, because, 
you know, you can engineer somebody you wanted to play a guitar or be a drummer or a bass player or a singer. You know, they already wanted to do that. And, you know, I think Malcolm Shot was the kind of catalyst on that. But really, that wasn't what the scene was to me. You know, it was kind of about you go out and you'd suddenly meet like-minded people. Yeah. And you could have a laugh and it was... Um, there was a lot of good stories about getting chased down the road and who'd done what and where they'd been. And, <laughs> you know, and it was um, scary on the outside because nobody liked you, you know, and the police would always give you a hard time and you'd get, you know, bashed up by teddy boys and it did the normal <laughs> kind of things, you know. But it was really, I think I can safely say, nearly everyone in that very early kind of 12 to 20 sort of people that sort of, got the ball rolling were all kind of misfits in a way mm. and didn't really belong in the normal you know, scheme of things. All of a sudden, a lot of people that, you know, all kinds of different social backgrounds, problems, issues, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. all of a sudden, I found the kind of like-minded people or people that had experienced the same thing or weren't judgmental about their past or weren't judgmental about the way they were. If somebody thought it was a good idea to wear a bin liner, then that was great. Fair play. Yeah. And who was anybody else? You know, what right does anybody else have to say, no, you can't look that way. You can't behave that way. You can't dress that way. So it was a very creative kind of almost genius <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and we, we talked about Malcolm. I mean, what, what's your memories of now the, the now infamous ill-fated anarchy in the UK tour? What, what, what was your memories of that now? Well, it was politics, really, and money. And it was about, you know, sustaining the pistols as, you know, as being Malcolm's band and the band. I mean, to be honest, we were only on the tour because the damned had been out working live for quite a while and um, mm -hmm. we'd built up a pretty big, you know, audience and um, they had to have us on the bill to sell tickets. It was really as cut and dry as that. And then they did the, the Grundy show yeah. and um, of course they didn't need us anymore to do it. So it became a, you know, let's get rid of the competition. <laughs> That's one way of putting it, yeah. Um, and then just, just moving forward, we've, we've talked a bit about the punk, the punk and everything like that. We've dwelt on that. But you guys, you made records to please yourselves, didn't you? Obviously, the band members and things changed over many years and things like that. But you veered away from just the, the fast kind of emotional punk. You ushered in a darker scene and there's the Black Album, Strawberries, Phantasmagoria. The band evolved, didn't it? Yeah, we... We were always aware of our harshest critics who used to say that, you know, really we were just a three-chord punk band and, you know, that was kind of all we were capable of. But we had a bit of a dilemma as well because we didn't know how the audience would react to a different mm -hmm. kind of musical approach. So we were very lucky that the audience were sort of growing with us, if you like, yeah. and they were ready to move into something, with you know, you know, there was more subtlety, there was more things going on and four chords. <laughs> and is that the secret so, behind the longevity, yeah. do you think? Um, the, ev evolution? the audience going with us, certainly. But I think once we'd realised that and that really, you know, we'd, we'd got over the sort of your know, 15 minutes, you know, in 1976, 77, and then we realised that we could progress and our audience would be sort of kind of okay with that. 
then the floodgates were open. You know, we could do anything we wanted, and uh, and we did. I suppose it was brilliant freedom working in the dam. I, I don't know if many people know that. But actually, when you were in the studio, when you were putting an album together, everybody's idea was valid. Everybody was kind of free to chip in with whatever they wanted to do or, you know, and uh, it was an incredibly open thing. I think that's one of the reasons to make the record sort of different is that it, that isn't the way that most people work. You know, they usually, you know, we never had a damned identity, <laughs> if you like. You know, like many bands always have a certain sound and a certain look to them, to what they do. And the, the Dam never really did that, apart from one of it's just sort of chaotic characters up on stage. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to come alive there when you're talking about the, the different mood. I mean, what, what was your favourite era of the band then? Um, I, it's really tough because mm. there are so many different kinds of good that were going on, like being creative, and that was very much the kind of machine gun etiquette yeah. kind of era, I think. And then, But we did apply the same rules when we went on to Phantasmagoria and, and Eloise and that whole kind of thing. So we, you know, it's a tough one to say which was the, the, the best bit, you know, because there were a lot of good bits in all of it. Not always good, but generally speaking. <laughs> and and how do you feel? Because I speak to different people, and you mention the name The Damned, and you get people coming back going, "Oh yeah, the punk band." And then you'll get other people coming back saying Eloise. I mean, there's not many bands that can split people like that. No, it was very difficult life, you know, because you'd have all the kind of yeah punk rockers up the back waiting for you to do neat, neat, neat. And then there'd be the sort of what I used to call the Vanian dollies, you know. It's- <laughs> waiting for us to do Shadow of Love. And, and so there'd be a shift in the audience, you know, between the front rows, <laughs> depending on what songs we were playing. So it was strange. And I, I, I don't know how many Vaney and Dolly's got into the first album or the earlier stuff because of it. They were exposed to it. And I don't know how many hardcore kind of punk rockers got into Phantasmagoria. But there was a crossover and it was, you know... One I was very grateful for. Absolutely. And then kind of moving forward a little bit, there's a lot of recriminations within the group. There was, there was fallings out and you, you kind of left on bad terms, shall we say. Um, and then last year when the news broke that the original lineup were reforming for a series of gigs, it, it was quite a surprise. It was a nice surprise to come out of the blue. I mean, how did that all come about then? It's Dave Anian is okay. uh, the one who really wants to do it, I think. It's funny, you know, you, you go through these sort of things with band members and stuff. You know, what I didn't want was it to be too late <laughs> just because of some personal issues mm. that really, you know, didn't seem that big a deal to me. And uh, I didn't want us three of us to be standing around a grave saying we should have done the reunion, you know? That's very Unless true. it's mine, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing it was a an all or nothing. All, all four of you agree, or it's not going to happen, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And was there what, what was that first meeting like then when you you all got back in the room for the for the first time? Was there any I don't know animosity lingering? Was it all buried the hatchet? We we all grown up at that point, and that's it. Move on. This this is the bigger. It was bigger growing thing. up really. The first five seconds were a bit uncertain. You know. Is he going to hit me? Am I going to hit him? <laughs> but, it, you know, it was kind of, we all know why we're there. We all know what we're 
what we want to do and what we want to achieve from it. So, you know, it was painfully obvious. You just have to put everything away until this is done. And that's, you know, and try and let people know that you're not the person they think you are. We spent so many years sort of touring and, and being mates and doing all of that kind of band thing that it, you know, you've got to jog your memory as to what that was and why, you know, you thought Dave Vaney was funny or why the captain had an interesting idea about where we should go for lunch or, you know, the great songs that, they, that he wrote. You know, all of those things you have to take back on board because you reject them when you fall out and there's animosity. So you kind of have to remind yourself of what it is that you like about those people. Absolutely. Um, and then in terms of looking at the, the music you're going to play, it's going to be, what, the first two albums, I'm guessing, that's going to be on, on the live show. Is, is there going to be any surprises, a big stage show? Is there any going to be, or is it just going to be flat-out music? Oh, I'm keeping quiet about that. Actually, I have no <laughs> idea what we're going to do. We, um, the captain, we were talking about the equipment we were going to use. You know, because that's quite a big part of it, is the sound of the band yeah. from the time. Today, it's all, everything sounds very different. And um, they found Captain this, this bass guitar that he wanted to use. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's perfect. How much is it? <laughs> and they said, oh, it's like 200 quid. And he said, yeah, get me six. <laughs> 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 so I think I know what he's got in mind there. <laughs> and, um, They're not going to survive. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, hopefully, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. It's. They said I could have a flamethrower if I wanted one. <laughs> if I wanted to set fire to the drums. So, um, but it's uh, it's kind of weird when you get you know get to my age and it's like, do I really want to act like that? <laughs> I really want to set fire to the drums again. It's. Dancers on a postcard. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, obviously the tour's been moved back now, isn't it, of COVID reasons and everything else to, to the start of next year. Um, have you guys, or did you guys get into the studio at any point to, to rehearse or anything like that? Yeah, well, Brian and I put in one rehearsal a few weeks ago, you know, before we heard that it was being moved. And uh, i got to say, a lot of the things that were worrying me about being able to play the songs actually absolutely disappeared Good. and um i came out of the rehearsal room you know thinking we can do this and we can we can do it well you know it's because the last thing any of us wants is to go up and just be a load of old you know old farts <laughs> going through the motions or just trying hard but not quite getting there but yeah when i came out it was kind of like yeah no Brian still got it, and it it sounded really good. I was I was, I was absolutely delighted. <laughs> good stuff. And so, when will you head back into the studio as, as a four piece then to, to rehearse properly? I know, like I said, it's not till next year now. But have you got any plans of when that's going to happen? No, but we talking about it. We want it to be a longer process. We, you know, we don't want to just go in sort of three days before the first show and hope that everything's all right you know yeah. i think we need to get it um it's to feel like a band i think if we're going to do it well i think we have to feel like like a band does you know which means you spend time and drink beer <laughs> and 
you know, do all of that fun stuff. And is there any thoughts uh, or talk about maybe a, a, any new music coming out from the four of you? No. Brian's um, working on his solo album at the moment, so he's pretty tied up with that. And I'm, um, you know, I'm very busy with the Sinclairs and uh, the other projects I'm involved with, you know, 1000 Motels and Professor and the Madman and things like that. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know... Not sure because we, you know, we've still only been in a room twice with the mm-hmm. four of us. So the thing about actually going in to make a record or anything like that is quite a long way down the line, I think. Yeah. Be good, though. Yeah, certainly would be. Certainly would be. And you mentioned there quickly you, you're working on so many other projects. You always have so many projects on the go. But the Sinclairs had an album out um, last year and you say you're working on one now, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Literally just before the phone rang. I um, yeah, it's um, you know, it's what do you do during lockdown? Well, I tell you, you send files to each other and you write songs and you make music, just like every other every other musician in this world has been doing. You know, it's uh, I think it's going to be quite strange. I think there's going to be quite a flood of new music this year. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Rat, and uh, wish you all the best of luck for the future. Look forward to hearing the new Sinclair's album and uh, look forward to seeing you live with, with your former bandmates as The Damned. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Take it easy. There you go, the brilliant Rat Scabies there. He's one of those guys from one of those kind of bands that I could easily have talked to for hours. He's got so many incredible stories that came from that band, but time was limited. And it's at this stage of proceedings that I give you my favourite five songs from the group in question. But as they went from punk to goth and all in between, there's certainly a lot of wide-ranging music to go through. Now remember, this is my personal choice. It's not a critic selection, just the songs that I like the most. So, here's my top five songs from The Damned according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is the first punk single to be released in the UK, 1976, The Pioneer. It's typically raw and fast and raucous, ending in a cacophony of noise. Is she really going out with him? At number five is New Rose. Number four is from their darker output, the opening track from their 1985 album Phantasmagoria. It's a catchy, dare I say, sing-along number. Ooh, ee indeed. At number four is Street of Dreams. My number three is the closing track on their third album, 1979's Machine Gun Etiquette. Although it's the part two bit that I'm talking about. It was boycotted by BBC Radio 1 for its anarchic lyrics. Another reason to like it, really. And number three for me is Smash It Up Part 2. At number two is the opening track from their debut album, Visceral, Loud, Raw, as the early punk scene very much was. And number two for me is Neat Neat Neat. And at number one is their first song to break big, reaching number 20 in 1979. It's catchier and less raw than their earlier singles, but just as fast. It also earned the band their first spot on the iconic Top of the Pops TV show. Now my favourite track of theirs, and the number one damned song according to me at Vintage Rock Pod, is Love Song. There you go, my favourite five songs from The Damned. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree, disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com or you can message me on the socials. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube as well. Give us a like or a follow on there too. Also, check out my website, vintagerockpod.com and while you're on there, you can join the ever-growing list of VRP VIPs who sign up for the once-weekly newsletter that gives them all the latest information. They find out who's going to be on their future show 
goes first. You get your chance to put a question to future guests and your chance to win goodies and prizes and stuff like that coming up soon as well. So don't miss out on any of the latest news and scoops from Vintage Rock Pod. Just sign up to become a VIP VIP at VintageRockPod.com. You can also see more information about my spin-off syndicated radio show on the website as well. It's called The Vintage Rock Show. I know, very original. It's broadcast on radio stations in Scotland, England and in Spain. It's an hour of top classic rock songs with a few clips of my interviews thrown in for good measure too. Like I said, find out all about that at VintageRockPod.com. Now, don't forget Vintage Rock Pod Side 2 will be out on Friday. It's a magazine-style show. It's got various different guests on there. It's full of classic rock content. So far, we've had concert promoters, we've had authors, we've had rock fans, we've had um, other podcasters. There's quizzes in there. We always have the news on there. There as well so it really is full of classic rock music stuff just for you it's the companion piece to this regular show so don't miss out on it anyway until the next episode then remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock just tell them my music is better than yours take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.